and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Van Staden from the University of Johannesburg Center for African Diplomacy and Foreign Policy. Good afternoon, Kobus. Good afternoon. Well, it's uh, we have to apologize right off the top, Kobus, because you and I actually did a show last week. It was actually a really good show. Uh, but there are gremlins in our system, and we've had some technical difficulties for the past two weeks. And if you heard the podcast from two weeks ago, you'll know that the audio wasn't great. So we hope that we have uh, exercised all of the demons from our recording system. And so we apologize for not having a show on air last week. It was not because we didn't try. Uh, and so I had to apologize profusely to Cobus uh, for, uh, <laughs> for, for that. But uh, we are back, and hopefully you can hear us all crystal clear. And uh, so we're going to have a an all Johannesburg show today. Uh, in addition to Kobus, who's there, we're also joined by uh, by Yushan uh, Wu, Wu Yushan from the South African Institute of International Affairs. Uh, good afternoon, Yushan. How are you? Hi. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the first time on the podcast. And uh, but we have a, a returning veteran to our show, Lu Jinghao, who's an analyst. Uh, based in Johannesburg, who focuses on China-Africa relations. He's also a blogger and a social media expert more and more. Uh, welcome back, Lu, uh, Jinghao. Thank you very much. I wouldn't call myself an expert in social media, however, but I'm um, just trying to uh, promote the uh, knowledge of China-Africa relations. You're, you're characteristically modest, so I'll let you kind of say that, but I'll still, ref- I'll still consider you to be an expert, and I'll explain why. Uh, because we have, we are so thrilled to have this panel with us today. In part because all three are contributors to a new academic uh, uh, journal that Cobus himself edited. So I'm going to praise Cobus here. It's the uh, African East Asian Affairs. There's a special issue on the electronic shadows, media in East Asian African relations. And so we are going to get the the authors themselves their take on two particular stories. One that uh, that Wu Yushan uh, wrote uh, called the political and diplomatic implications of social media, the cases of Chinese soft power. So she will talk about how uh, how social media is being used in South Africa and also how in China and how it's affecting bilateral and diplomatic relations between the two. We'll get her take on that. And then Jinghao and Kobus together worked on uh, a fascinating piece called Lonely Nights Online, how, so, how to Social Networking Channel Chinese Migration and Business to Africa. For longtime listeners of the show, you'll know that this is one of my kind of pet projects as well, is to kind of go behind the linguistic and cultural walls that divide really the Chinese internet from the rest of the world in the sense of, A, there's the Great Firewall, but more importantly, there's the language difference and there's this incredible richness to the social networking content out there. And both Jinghao and Kobus did a fantastic job of contextualizing it and offering up a guide. So we'll talk about that. But first, we're going to talk about uh, Michael Sada, who is the president of, uh, of, of Zambia. And Michael Sada spent a week in southern China at the Boao Forum. And if you're not familiar with the Boao Forum, it's China's answer to the, to the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. And so what they do is every year is they bring together predominantly a lot of you know rich people who like to rub shoulders with politicians, particularly the Chinese. Uh, Xi Jinping himself was there. Uh, Premier Li Keqiang was there. Uh, and there's, uh, it's basically a, a big group think and, and the who's who of, of Chinese diplomacy comes there. And Michael Sada himself was there, and which is kind of, there's some irony to Michael Sada being there. And this is what I'd like to get our panel's take on this, in part because Michael Sada, known as the King Cobra, uh, really built the latter part of his career as a political 
uh, opponent of the government, uh, really based around opposition to Chinese investment. And now when he goes to uh, Sanya in uh, Hainan Island, uh, he you did not see any of that. So, Kobus, was, were you surprised in any way about how accommodating uh, Sada is and how his transformation, at least superficially, has become when it comes to dealing and interacting with the Chinese? No, not really, because he has been moving in that direction for a while. You know, as, as you mentioned before his election, before he became elected, before he was elected as president, he um, he was quite critical of China. But then, very soon after the election, he he swung 180 degrees. Um, and I think the only people who still characterise him as anti-Chinese are Western journalists who tend to quote him even now. Um, you know, kind of while in reality, he's actually quite quite conciliatory and quite pro-Chinese. You, you know that Solange Gouin-Chardonnay, who's at uh, the Max Planck Institute in Germany, she's really widely considered to be one of the preeminent experts on Sino-Zambian relations. And one of the points that she makes is that Sata is, has never been anti-Chinese. Sata has been always a politician, a politician who understands his audience and his constituents and a politician who understands the times. And there were there was reasons to really be very vocal in the criticism of the Chinese at certain times that were opportune politically. And then there are other times when it's not. And so, Yushan, I'd like to get your take on Michael Sada in terms of the, the, the overall you know perception that he's helped frame the debate over China and Africa in many ways. As Kobus said, you know, Western journalists continue to quote him profusely, even though the things that he said were years, years and years ago. What was your thought looking at Michael Sada and the transformation that he's gone through over the past, uh, say, two to three years since he's assumed power? Well, I think my my first um, you know thought was actually the questioning the validity validity of actually um, asking him to represent the entire Africa as this image of Africa's discontent. Um, I think exactly what Solange was saying is that he is a politician, um, and at the time um, he was campaigning to draw the discontent on the ground, and you know so I think he was just reflecting on what a lot of the people were feeling at the time. And, you know, losing out economically because of China's engagement is only one aspect of um, African opinions towards China's engagement in Africa. Um, but I do think if you look at now, um, now that he's leading the country, it makes sense that he would engage China. I mean, I think it's positive and it's something that we actually shouldn't ignore is that we want our, our leaders to engage with our foreign partners, but we also want our leaders to be critical so I think it is something positive. It may not change something, you know, change um, Africa-China's relations and its image over, you know, just overnight. But I do think it's something positive that we should watch for and we should see how, you know, what follows from this. Jinghao, I'd like to get your opinion on the lesson that Michael Sada might be able to teach Chinese policymakers. So, you know, for years, Sada was the thorn in China's side on the PR front because he said these wonderful, wonderful quotes that Zambia is the newest uh, Chinese province, he said one time. And he said it in much more kind of stinging words than that. Uh, and now he's, he's, you know, he's a decent friend of China. Um, and when we look at the comments that recently came out of the central bank governor of uh, Nigeria, uh, we, you know, we see that China's feathers got ruffled in there. So what lessons do you think Michael Sada can teach the Chinese about, you know, engaging in African politics and dealing with African politicians? Well, I think uh, 
uh, the Chinese leader certainly knows that if Michael Sata wants to stay in his job, uh, there's not much choice he left other than uh, engaging actively with China. So um, I personally think the Chinese um, central government is very cool in terms of what the, their political leaders, like including the Nigerians, including the Zambians, and also recently Ghanaians, about you know how the government has been abusing that uh, $1 billion uh, CDB loan. Um, I, I think uh, the Chinese government knows who they are dealing with, and um, they know that uh, with regard uh, with all these Chinese uh, state-owned enterprises engaging in different sectors, even if the leaders are um, you know trying to make some negative comments, they'll try to figure out what is really going on. That does not that does not say that uh, the Chinese uh, politicians went to look at some countries with a, a lot of political risk, uh, such as Chad, such as Central African Republic. They will look at these countries as if you know their leaders are still not figuring out what's going on and they will be very cautious but I will definitely say like countries like Nigeria, Ghana and Zambia uh, no matter what the politicians use the public sentiment towards Chinese uh, in their elections uh, the Chinese government will always know what to do, what to deal with the, the, the government. Well let's summarize a few of the points that uh, mm-hmm. Sata made in his last day in China during talks with uh, Li Keqiang Li is of course the Chinese premier and one of the things that he's asking for is help with creating Zambian Airways. Now, China has gotten involved in building airlines, particularly we're seeing out of Ghana, uh, that Hainan Airways is partnering uh, in Ghana to create uh, Cobus. What's the name of that airline out of Ghana now? I'm actually not sure. Okay. Sorry, I'm blanking on I'm the name. I'm blanking on the name of it, but there I, is a joint venture I, out of Ghana. Can I, say that? Uh, I think it's called AWA. It's uh, a co-investment between uh, China Africa Development Fund and uh, Hainan Airline. Um, so they set up this airline uh, headquartered in Accra, but the providing service all across uh, West Africa, trying to kind of, you know, because we know in West Africa there hasn't been any significant airline such as Ethiopia, Kenya, or South Africa Airway. So, like, this is a huge market to take advantage of given, like, the more opportunities in Nigeria and Ghana and other West Africa countries emerges. So I think it's a very, very smart move. But just a side note. No, 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 that's it. On. And that's, I think, maybe setting a precedent in some ways for what Sata is looking for from the Chinese to set up a similar joint venture in Zambia. Interesting that, you know, one of the key news events of this past week as well was that uh, a Chinese consortium of construction firms was awarded the first uh, contracts to build the massive new Kenyan port uh, to the Indian Ocean at Lamu in a half a billion dollar contract. And so there seems to be a lot of eagerness with African states to partner with Chinese uh, Chinese companies and Chinese state-owned enterprises on logistics and transportation projects, SADA is asking for that. Uh, And he asked for continued investment and also he mentioned the fact, and this was very interesting, uh, Jinghao, as well, that he said China has high unemployment and Zambia has high unemployment, so the two of us should work together to reduce unemployment in both countries. Uh, And I thought that was a very interesting way that he tapped into some of the Chinese domestic political concerns as well. What was your thought on that, Jinghao? Um, I'm actually not aware of that comments, but I think it's very interesting that uh, uh, this is the, like perhaps the first time like African leaders trying to like understand what is really happening in China with their social political issue and how that is related to uh, their own country's development. So. Not- no matter whether or not they can actually facilitate any movement of population or to 
kind of resolved issue, I think it's a very positive sign of African leaders trying to understand what's going on. I think a side note for this is also, uh, I, I read the news during the Boal, uh, Boal uh, Forum, uh, Michael Sata actually also show a very uh, expressive interest in Chinese culture and Chinese uh, Jing prospering. So I, I think you know, all these are, are very positive um, uh, signals to me. Kobus, what I liked most about Sada's trip and what I like most about Sada is that he's, he's, he's there's a badass side to this guy. I mean, this is a guy, and this is what we've talked about, how you know there's a demand for African leaders to really stand up to the Chinese and to negotiate with them as equals. And you really get the sense that Sada is not intimidated by the Chinese and he's willing to sit across the table from someone like you know Xi Jinping or Li Keqiang or these big guys from the China Development Bank and really say, I'm going to negotiate the best deal for Zambia. Now, that just may, the, may be the perception. I don't actually know if he's doing that. But at least we're starting to see some African leaders stand up to the Chinese. Am I, am I off base on that? What was your thoughts when you, when you see him? Yeah, there, there's been a, a growing chorus of people who, of, of African leaders who are making this point. And this week, for example, Ted Diabiti, the, the, the finance minister of Zimbabwe, made a very similar point. It was interesting for me that SATA positioned the, the relationship between Zambia and China very explicitly as both being developing countries. And I was wondering whether that was a kind of a subtle um, moving away from what Lamida Sunusi, Lamida Sunusi was saying, that, that you can't consider China a developing country anymore. More. Um, that might be overreading it, but it seemed like the 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 tenor of the friendship that he was setting up between China and, and Zambia was one of let's work together because we're both developing. Um, so that was an interesting position for him to take, I thought, and, and a potentially a very valuable one. I wanted to ask you guys what you thought of Sata repeatedly said that um, they that, that Zambia is very interested in exporting agricultural products to China, um, and that of course the issue of China of, of Africa of African food being exported to China has for a long time been very controversial. Um, within Africa and also, you know, kind of Europeans and Americans tend to jump on that as well. I was wondering whether you thought that he might be creating trouble for himself in the future politically. Yushan, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I guess it's up to us to decide what we, I mean, I think it's quite positive. Um, you know, I, when I was in China last year, um, you know, you find out that only one-seventh of China is actually a land that you can grow things on. So I, I think it can be positive as I said before, if we have critical leaders, that we're not just going to say yes to everything. And when we're looking at these leaders and how um, they're now engaging China, I think it's positive still. And at the same time, I also think it's just normal diplomacy, you know, that um, that it's, this is no longer a novel engagement, but it has to be fair. You know, you know Kobus, let me address both of your, your points here. On Let's start with the agriculture point, which is that, you know, the United States and Europe really, in my opinion, have no legs to stand on when it comes to talking about, you know, importing agricultural products from the developing world. Of course, this is the very topic that has shut down the, the World Trade Organization talks, in part because the Chinese have said that the massive subsidies that Japan, the United States, and Europe afford their farmers are simply anti-competitive to the developing world, to countries exactly like Africa. And I'm surprised that you mentioned that this is controversial in part because, uh, you know, China took off tariffs on 4,000 agricultural products from coming from Africa. What's controversial is, of course, I think, the is the land acquisition. Are you talking about exports from Africa to China or are you talking about the acquisition of, of Chinese acquisition of land in Africa? 
I think the two overlap to a certain extent because there, there is a growing amount of leasing of land by not only by China but by the Gulf states, by Korea, in, in a bunch of different African countries. And in certain cases, that those have become those cases have become very controversial. But I think food food security in Africa is an incredibly pol- controversial political issue. Um, you know, kind of, and I think Africa. Africans themselves frequently f- still feel very food insecure, and um, you know, kind of the history of famine in Africa is still fresh. So I think it is very possible for that to be kind of worked up, you know, kind of by by opposition politicians in the future. That that's what that's my intuition. I don't know if you guys agree. Yeah, no, I mean it absolutely is subject to it. And just to to pick up on Ushan's point and to your point too about defining China as a developing country, and this is where I think Sanusi, you know, is 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 maybe off base just a little bit here because, you know, we can see in China what we want to see. We can see the world's second largest economy that's a powerhouse that now has living standards on the East Coast that are comparable to Southern Europe and Portugal and Spain. So it's really not a developing country anymore. You know, the United States has long wanted to classify China not as a developing country anymore. And this has been, of course, the one of the dilemmas in the World Trade Organization as well. But on the other hand, China has more poor people than Africa does. China still has uh, some some horrific poverty. Uh, you know, the countryside, uh, there are huge problems, not only with, with poverty, but also farmers and also with corruption. And China is most definitely a developing country. So this is what creates the problems. And we're going to get to how to define some of the language later on in the show. But this is, I think, one of the key issues that uh, that, that troubles the relationship because the and, – and you've talked about this in your journal – you know, characterizing the Chinese is difficult and the Chinese describing the Africans and African countries is difficult. So I think that's it. So let's get on now to our second topic. Uh, and this is really going to focus on the academic journal that Cobus edited. So, uh, Cobus, before we get started on this, maybe tell us a little bit about what inspired you to do the special edition of the African East Asian Affairs Journal. Uh, and again, the title is Electro- Electric Shadows, Media and East Asian African Relations. What was the kind of the reason that you wanted to do this journal and and how did you get involved with it? Well, the um, African East Asian Affairs is put out by the Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch University, where I was last year, um, and they, you know, they wa- they wanted um, a special edition dealing with with new or un- unexamined issues of me- of, of media um, in China Africa relations, particularly looking at new media, because you know a lot of the focus is so, including in my own work, has so far fallen on TV, and there's a good reason for that because you know because TV TV is very high status, and the Chinese have tended to the Chinese government has tended to to focus a lot on TV as a as a vehicle for soft power and diplomatic, um, you know, image building. Um, but but new media is incredibly important. Some, uh, you know, among other reasons, because Chinese companies like Huawei are setting up new media networks, like internet ne- and cell phone networks, like crazy all over Africa. So it's it's really growing, um, and it's there's a lot of aspects there that people have not looked at. So um, two of the two of the papers by Bob Wekeza and Yaroslav Yura um, looked at um, at you know kind of online portals and, and and you know kind of online newspapers in Africa and the way that they that they uh, report about China and the, the way the Chinese images are built images of China are built um, on those portals and they both found that generally the reporting is is a quite positive surprisingly positive and b that the the positive images are almost always 
um, you know, relating to business success, business success and economic growth, more than traditional ideas of soft power like culture or an image of democracy. Um, so that was interesting. And then um, Yushan and um, Jihao in my articles, we, we looked explicitly at social media mm-hmm. um, and, you know, kind of the, the different way, the different impacts that social media are having on China-Africa relations. Well, let's let's get right to it with Yushan's article. We'll start with hers, then we'll go we'll go back to Jinghao and Jacobus on, on his article and their articles. Uh, so, Yushan, you talked about the political and diplomatic implications of social media, the cases of Chinese soft power. Um, and so in, you, you kind of compared the situation between South Africa and China, how both of these countries are using social media, but there are very different uses of it in, in, in both contexts. Tell us a little bit about that. What was your, your thesis? Well, it was actually quite interesting. I mean, the work that I do at um, at SIA is trying to look at the complexity of foreign engagement in Africa. And also, so we try to inform um, policymaking, um, um, you know, among Africans. And I think what was interesting is when you look at the actual policymaking, it's become a very complicated process and possibly because of this larger public role. And I mean, for example, you can see during the U.S. presidential elections last year, how the candidates were using social media to tap into new um, voting demographics. I mean, you can look at the um, Obama app that came out to try and draw on, you know, the young um, and technology savvy um, users. And, you know, you could, so that was quite interesting. But I think, so then my question was, what is the role of the social media in policymaking in China and South Africa? And how does this affect um, China's engagement in Africa? And, I think what's interesting is you have two countries who are both, um, you know, taking up communication technology very rapidly, um, China at a greater rate than South Africa. But what is quite interesting is you have um, two different kinds of outcomes. Um, and I, I guess my whole entire thesis, um, if you had to try and uh, summarize the paper, <laughs> is that you know, social media really depends on the user and the political context that it exists under. Now, you mentioned that, for example, in South Africa, there is less of a direct use by politicians of social media. But in China now, yeah. we're seeing more and more of that, you know, that, that, you know, and again, in China, there's a number of different contradictions there because on the one hand, the government actively controls and monitors social media, but on the other hand, they also use it as a release valve of pressure where they, they let out a lot of the steam that, that society builds up and, and a lot of that's reflected on social media. So tell us a little bit about how the, the ruling political classes in both countries are, are using or not using social media to, to, the, to the best effect. Okay, well, I think China is interesting and I think you notice that social media is used a lot by the public to engage policymakers, especially in countries that are less openly democratic, um, like South Africa. And so there are less political platforms to express your views. So, and what I find interesting is, you know, that the government is engaging. And I think that is the first step is you have to have all, all sides engaging the, the, the tool or the medium. And so what's quite interesting is I think the Chinese leadership's engagement in the social media is both selective and also responsive. I mean, if you look at 2009, um, the previous premier, Wen Jiabao, was conducting live web chats and, um, to the public where the public could send in questions and he would answer those questions online. Um, and I think, I think, you know, if we look at the leadership now, 
they're also, a, I think, a lot more um, attuned to what, you know, communicating with the public. Um, so I think that's that's how you see I see China. But I think in South Africa, it's a different case. I mean, we have the, the technology and it's growing, but we don't necessarily engage it in the political way that you see elsewhere. So, for example, it's still, you know, it's it's not um, uniform. So, for example, when I was looking at the, our president's um, Facebook page, it's quite interesting how many young people are commenting on stories such as, um, I don't know, the new census that came out last year, the State of the Nation speech. But you see very little interaction from, from the presidency and response to a lot of their questions. So there's a lack of – is that a, because there's a lack of sophistication or just because, you know, they don't get it? Why do you think that is? Because it's increasingly unusual, particularly in more advanced economies, that politicians uh, don't use it. Now, to be fair, President Sarkozy in France just opened up his Twitter account probably three months before last year's election. So, you know, South African political leaders are by no means alone. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I would say slowly but surely um, – we're going to see our government engaging social media a lot more. I mean, the ANC, the ruling Afri- African National um, Congress, has actually, uh, you know, indicated that in the presidential elections next year that they're going to have a social media strategy because they are realizing a lot of the new voting demographics are online. So I think that's an interesting thing. We're kind of in an in-between phase because our main opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, they've had a social media strategy similar to the Obama campaign since 2009. And, of course, we know of um, many of you might know about the new political party that's just come out, Akhang, who's also talked about how they want to draw on, um, you know, drawn the voting demographic online and they want to start engaging people through discussion. So they actually haven't had, they don't have a set, um, you know, a set objective, but they actually want to increasingly draw on public, public debate and public opinion. You know, Kobus, yeah, uh, sorry, if I could jump in there, sorry to interrupt you. I think, I think another issue, one, one, one related issue is that it seems to me that the, the ANC, the African National Congress has gotten a little behind in terms of, of the population. You know, kind of smartphone penetration is very high in South Africa or relatively high in, in, in the African context. And I think this also reflects a little bit of a, a little bit of a move, perhaps, or I've seen it uh, characterized as such, that the ANC is becoming more and more rural um, and more um, hostile towards cities. Um, and you know, obviously, the city is the is the center of you know, kind of, of, of online action in South Africa. So um, I, I don't know, you know, that that I don't think everyone probably agrees with that, but I, I have seen that that characterization. I, I guess, Kobus, my my question for you is, you know, Ushan's research kind of found that. There's differences in how both the the South Africans and the Chinese use it, but she really talked about them in two kind of isolated contexts. What I'm curious about is, you know, what's the interaction between the two? So, for example, do you remember a a couple months ago, Noseweek uh, did some – what most people – call some pretty crappy reporting on Chinese migrants. Uh, and that prompted, you know, discussion on social networks about the presence of Chinese migrants in various uh, South African communities. Uh, but for the most part, do we see a lot of discussion between or about South Africans and Chinese in South Africa or on global networks? Or again, as Yushan pointed out, are they kind of in two different extremes, not talking to each other? 
I think at the moment I, I would agree with, with Yushan that, it, that they, there isn't a lot of, of discussion. Um, Yushan, go ahead. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I did look at the diplomatic implications and really because it's still playing out, well, in my view, it's still playing out that, you know, there's, there are indications that I wouldn't, you know, I can't really tell you where the relationship is going to go. But from what I can see, it almost seems like, you know, if I'm looking at the opinions online now, that they are very narrow in interest and also quite reactive. So, for example, when you talk about this Newsweek article, again, there was a response to that article on the Daily Maverick. And just looking at the type of comments that came out um, after that article, you know, um, it was quite interesting to see that South Africans are not talking about, you know, what does this mean for um, business in South Africa? What is our relationship with China? Um, things like you know, our, our governance. So it's really much, um, I heard a good description of South African public last week is that we're very much parochial. So, you know, we, we want to know what, how does this affect us immediately? And it's kind of like we're looking at it from that kind of point of view that if it doesn't affect us, then there almost isn't this interest. Well, I guess that makes South Africans like everybody else. I mean, I would say that's, a, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, I mean, most people are parochial. And as we're going to hear from Jing Hao, uh, there's a lot of parochialism on the Chinese web as well. But for the most part, and there's my final question to you on the South African side, and then we're going to jump over to Jing Hao and Kobus on the Chinese side. But on the South African side, do you get the sense that social media is also influencing public opinion about the Chinese in South Africa, particularly when it comes to, you know, the controversies over the investment in the taxi companies, you know, the unions are very hostile to Chinese investment in South Africa. Uh, and, and is social media playing a role in shaping public opinion, or is there simply not enough discussion online to have an effect? Um, I think what the social media is um, is doing is actually showing us what people are thinking. Um, another example is, you may know in 2011, that example of the, well, the case of the South African Janice Linden, who was executed in China. Now, if you look at the type of comments that came after that article, you know, after that news story, it was also very critical about China, about South Africa's relationship with China again, um, you know, and I don't know, the different um, systems, the, the political systems. So I, I think, you know, it does show you what people think. But I would have to caution that it's, you know, it's not necessarily the social media um influencing these opinions. I think those opinions already exist. But what's interesting is you may have reaction to a new story like that, but does these reactions go offline? And another thing, yeah. Go ahead, Cobus, final thought to you on this. Um, yeah, sorry, just just final thing. I think it also reflects a little bit the parochialism that, that Yushan mentioned in the sense that South Africans are, especially currently, are obsessed by the, their their relationship as citizens to the government, and the government obviously is very dominated by the African National Congress. So in certain cases, um, China becomes this kind of stick to hit the South African government with, you know, and, and, and you know, and it, it, China becomes a kind of a, a, a lightning conveyor, you know, kind of for, for resentments relating to the ruling party because the ruling party is seen as being very close to China. So you, you see that, you saw that a lot in South African discussion over the, the controversy about the, the refusal of a visa to the Dalai Lama or, you know, or the, their dragging of feet on the visa issue. And then also recently on rhino poaching, 
you know, kind of infrequently, you know, kind of you, you see China being used as a way to attack the, the South African government. Well, we hope yeah. we are not provincial or parochial, even though, you know, Cobus, we are accused of that from time to time on our <laughs> Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And I guess one of the things that, that I'm most proud of the page is that, as we as we heard from Yushan, it really is one of the places where Africans and Chinese are actually talking to each other, or at least not talking at one another. And that's really our objective, is to try and bring people from all sides together to have a conversation, a civil conversation. Um, and uh, and we have uh, we're at you know we've got over fifty five thousand followers and friends now on Facebook. So uh, we'd love to have you get in on the conversation. What do you think of of Ushan's points? And uh, we've posted links to her work. We'll repost the uh, the journal so you can download it. It is free, uh, and we'd love for you to comment on Ushan and Jinghao and Kobus's writings on social media because hey, it's on Facebook. What better place to actually talk about social media? Okay, let's now cross to the other side of the world and get the. Chinese perspective on things and Chinese social networks. Now, what makes the Chinese different in terms of when I say the Chinese, Chinese linguistically and culturally different than, say, other countries is the fact that the Chinese social web uh, is just absolutely massive. And in many ways, it's larger uh, than, than, than the English language web. So, for example, for everything that they have in the West, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, there are Chinese equivalents of them. And then there are sub-networks. And this is in particular where Jinghao and Kobus's research gets very interesting. And these are the sites that I'm actually intrigued by. So they've got the big sites, uh, Baidu, Tianya, Sohu, Sina. Those are the massive portals that are among the largest websites in the world. All of those, in fact, are in the top 15 largest websites. But then there is uh, ChineseInAfrica.com slash BBS. There is Chu Feizhou, and Chu Feizhou in Chinese means go to Africa, and that is a, a, a social network and a portal dedicated simply to Chinese in Africa. I really, really recommend that you check them out. Of course, if you don't speak Chinese, you will not be able to really fully understand it, but Google Translate can actually get you about halfway there. So if you take these websites and you put them into Google Translate, you'll get a sense of them. So let's go to Jinghao right now and talk about your article, which, by the way, you win the prize for the best name. And did Kobus or Jinghao, did you come up with the name Lonely Nights Online, How Does Social Networking Channel Chinese Migration and Business to Africa? So first of all, how did you come up with the title of Lonely Nights Online, Jinghao? We we were kind of throwing it back and forth, I think. I can't remember. <laughs> it's a great name. Well, I, I would, well, I, I first did that uh, Kobus uh, finalized the title. Uh, I provide a suggestion. I just think uh, you know, it, it's very important we're talking about this title first because I'm exactly going to talk about the background of why social media is playing such an important role in Chinese and African relationships. So if you look at uh, the um, uh, Chinese people using the uh, social network, such as uh, the Tencent QQ, which is a instant message um, chatting machine, and also uh, the Chinese um, uh, the, the Chinese version of uh, Facebook Renren or the Chinese version of Twitter Weibo, like the Chinese young people use them all over the world. And wherever they go, they found that it's very hard to adapt to the local culture, which is especially the case in Africa. And they found that there is importance for them to kind of connect 
back with their uh, networking, China uh, uh, and family. And therefore, like the social media has played a very important role for the Chinese community in Africa. Another uh, piece of information I want to bring in is that if you look at the Chinese construction companies, mining companies, all these companies that operate in the remote region in Africa, uh, the only entertainment facility they can provide to the Chinese employees are, uh, is the internet. So basically at night, there is nothing for these Chinese uh, workers uh, in various African countries to do but to connect on the internet. And of course, they will not read English websites and all sorts of things. A lot of people don't speak a good English. And therefore, like, they just instantly switch to uh, QQ, switch on Weibo, switch on, on, on Renren and start connecting with uh, their, their uh, family and friends in China. So I think that's why this lonely night comes, comes into the place. Well, it's a great title. Kobus, you, you really divided the, the piece into two kind of distinct sections. One is on the, the personal side. Side, as, as Jinghao was talking about the fact that, you know, these, these are, at the end of the day, we talk about the Chinese in Africa, but ultimately it comes down to individuals. And those individuals, like, like everybody, want to connect, want to stay on top of news, want to stay on top of, you know, what boyfriends, girlfriends, husband, wives, grandmothers, grandfathers are doing. Uh, so there's that personal side. And then there's the kind of business professional side. Uh, tell us a little bit more about the business professional side of how the social networks are being used to really facilitate. Chinese economic engagement in Africa. Yes, that was a very interesting thing. Um, I think the Chinese use uh, the way that the, that the China, contemporary Chinese use social media is frequently more business forward than you would, for example, see on something like Twitter. Um, you know, frequently I think in, in many Western people use Twitter as a way of self-expression, and of course that's an important way that that social media is used in China as well. But in China, it's also explicitly used to build and source businesses. So if you want to set up a business somewhere, if you, for example, considering moving to Zambia um, from China and you want to set up, uh, you know, an export-import business, then that would be those, that kind of social media would be where you would throw out uh, questions about how to do it and then you'd immediately get advice about how to deal with customs, how to deal with the police, how to deal with currency transfers, whether you can bank in, in RMB in, in Zambia or not. Very specifically technical issues and you can also then use it as ways to to connect with people who can source your business with raw products or with you know people who who manufacture X product and you might want to sell that and then you can make connections in that way. Um, so it becomes this very interesting network of of uh, of interactions that in, that end up funneling business to from China to Africa. It really does pull the curtain back to how this is actually happening on such a massive level. And one of the things that a lot of people make mistakes about is when they think about Chinese economic engagement in Africa, they think about it in the state-owned enterprise context, the huge conglomerates that are coming over and these massive projects when, in fact, so much of it is being done by individuals or small businesses and entrepreneurs. And these social networks are just absolutely fascinating for revealing how people and jobs and money and opportunities are shared. Jinghao, let me go through a list of the of you really uh, the seven topics that you, you broke down, and I'd like to address three in detail. 
so let me read through the different categories and just to kind of let our, let our listeners kind of have an understanding of the of the, the breadth that you guys covered. First, you talked about business information exchange, and that's what Cobus really alluded to. People seeking to do partnerships. You know, for example, on Chinese in Africa, you'll see you know that there's a, a car dealer in Togo, and he's looking for partners to either distribute or to sell. So I, that's the business info, and that is also kind of very similar to seeking collaboration and exchange. Uh, number three is introducing business models, which I think is very interesting. Sharing success stories is number four. Uh, remittances is number five, and that goes back to the fact that we cannot forget that most of those workers who are over in Africa are er oftentimes earning more than they would back in China and sending that back home. Uh, Number six is perceptions of Africans, and this is going to be one of the most fascinating, and I want to get back to that. And finally, interracial dating and marriage. So, Let's start. I want to look at business, the business side a little bit more and also the perception side. So, Jing Hao, when we talk about seeking collaboration and exchange, that you, you, are you referring to the fact that Chinese are looking to partner with Africans or are they looking to partner with other Chinese? Uh, I think I, – I, well, I think there are two, two, two barriers here for Chinese to collaborate with Africans. One is language. The other is trust. Uh, and we cannot uh, – uh, uh, we cannot ignore that how important trust has played in, in Chinese business culture. And when Chinese using these uh, internet mach- uh, internet forums, uh, the, the reason they chose Chinese as the language is exactly because they want to engage with the Chinese because they feel there's a, a proximity uh, over there. So you see like the there are Chinese who are in China asking on, on these internet forums about uh, wanting to go to Africa and sell certain products or, or you know, or doing, doing business, and they ask for response. And then the pitch uh, coming from the Africa side are mostly uh, the Chinese, um, uh, either the Chinese people who are naturalized in Africa, mostly in the case in South Africa, or the Chinese who had uh, done business in Africa. So they say, okay, we are able to provide you um, uh, some kind of agency intermediate uh, work to move your goods into a- Africa and we can do it, uh, we can sell it for you. So then we see the conversation develops in the way that the Chinese side provides the QQ number, which is how you can chat with them individually. And then they start chatting uh, whatever uh, uh, content that we don't know. So I think this comes uh, again and again in many online forums that shows that uh, uh, how the Chinese and Chinese uh, doing business together uh, of moving goods from China into Africa. Okay, Kobus, let's get to a more sensitive issue, uh, and, and I'll, I'll relieve Jing Hao of, of talking about the sensitive one, which is, of course, the perceptions of Africans. Now, this one is, is very complicated because there is a high level of provincialism, as we heard from Yushan, that, that's predominant on social media. But there's also a very, sometimes a hostility and a nastiness that comes out, particularly a hostility to, 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 to blacks, to uh, you know, minorities of any kind, people who are different than the Chinese. What are some of the, the perceptions that you were finding? Yes, no, that was that was a very complicated uh, issue to work with, among others, because it was, you know, you, you, you find very a lot of different voices. So we, we found examples similar to the stuff that we, dis- that we discussed a few weeks ago with uh, Professor um, Cho Inghong on just naked racism, just, just kind of anti-African racism. And, um, and that was a quite a kind of complicated thing for Jing Hao and I to work with, because obviously we don't want to give offense, but we also don't want to sense ourselves. 
Um, so we had to kind of tread carefully. Um, and then, um, but then you also see in these discussions that a lot of um, that there is a, a quite a wide variety of voices and quite a, a lot of of different opinions. Um, so you would see, for example, someone would put you know the, an example that we use. Someone would put out a question about she is considering moving to Tanzania with her boyfriend, and um, a Chinese woman is, is considering moving to, to, to Tanzania with her Tanzanian boyfriend, and um, and whether this is a good idea. And then you get a lot of incredibly negative perceptions of Africans, like don't marry him, you know, it's a bad idea, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then also a lot of um, well, you know, kind of you know, all individuals are different, you can't generalize, and so on and so on. So there's this quite a kind of a wide variety of opinions but what is interesting also is that it's just this free fall you know kind of like just really really like kind of hardcore kind of discussion some of it is, is really kind of hurtful I think to a lot to, to African readers and some of it really is just you know interesting to read um, you know it's, you really get a feeling that people are working out these issues for themselves online you know Jing Hao you, you have followed both the perceptions of Africans in Chinese social media in China, particularly after the riots in Guangzhou from last year and a couple years ago, and then also obviously about Africans in Africa. Do you sense a difference between what how Chinese people refer to Africans who are in China to how they're describing Africans in Africa? Well, we need to understand first, like, who are using the China-Africa network media. Uh, in fact, a lot of them are uh, the Chinese who have not been to Africa yet. They want to see if there's opportunities. And, of course, the rest of them are the Chinese who have already been to Africa, who would give some more detailed an- analysis from their own perspective on what African uh, Africans are like. So when it comes to uh, certain events that uh, provokes the uh, nationalism or kind of uh, a xenophobic uh, sentiment uh, from Chinese over Africans. Uh, sometimes these are heavily discussed in the China-Africa network as well. So uh, if they refer to like certain issues that Africa has caused to China, uh, not only the Chinese people who never been to Africa uh, started to, to reflect uh, the, the common kind of xenophobic comments, the Chinese who are already in Africa also joins them and provides some supporting kind of uh, arguments, say, okay, yes, Africans in, uh, in Guangzhou have made these issues. They also had these issues when in uh, Tanzania or in Sudan, I found they are the same, and they start like chatting and reinforce each other. I think it's an, an unfortunate thing that uh, because the Chinese uh, people, like the private investors or the workers, are not very socialized in these African countries and their perception over Africans are very limited and uh, they will not be able to provide a uh, more kind of neutral analysis uh, to kind of uh, affect the opinions. In fact, they reinforce the, the negative con- 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 uh, concepts uh, while uh, in China. So, You know, Kobus, uh, my final thought on this subject is when I look at these social networks, um, it, it's very easy to get caught up on the xenophobia that Jinghao talks about and some of the hostility that you do see on all social networks, the provincialism that we heard from Yushan. But at the same time, the bigger picture of these social networks is the fact that 
they're actually exchanging ideas. They're they're acculturating. They're acclimating to the environment. They're they're swapping business tips. They're swapping cultural experiences. And I think that these social networks are absolutely critical for the development of the, of Chinese, you know, across the continent for understanding the continent and actually deepening understanding. And they're vital to that because people are are, are sharing stories and information and experiences. Uh, and so I wonder. I mean, have you seen anything comparable? In the non-Chinese world, that is the English-speaking world, are there similar social networks? I haven't seen them. I mean, there's Facebook and Twitter, but those are so vast, they, don't, they lack the focus that these social networks have specifically on Africa. And I guess I'm asking the question because, you know, the Chinese often get criticized for, you know, being foreigners and exotic and not assimilating into Africa uh, and being so different. And yet you see the content of and the substance of these social networks is absolutely the opposite in many respects. So that was a very long-winded question, kind of getting to the point of, you know, is there something comparable in the uh, Western world for Africa? Not that I've seen, um, you know, kind of, although I think one reason is that they, that, that going to Africa and setting up a business isn't such a, a realistic option, I think, for lots of people in the West than it would be, than it is for, for China, for, for people in China. I don't think it's such a, it's, it's, it's a, such a ready life choice. Um, you know, kind of, but I think where, what, where one might now see it developing might very well be in the Portuguese-speaking world because there's been a lot of, of migration of Portuguese-speaking people, particularly from Portugal, to Africa because, uh, because of, the, the, kind of the long economic slump in southern Europe and the, the comparative boom in, in places like Mozambique and Angola. So I, I think, you, I would guess, you might very well uh, you know, kind of see a similar kind of, of network starting to develop um, as more and more Portuguese-speaking people make their way to Africa. Um, Yushan, I actually wanted to, as, as just as a final thing, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, obviously we looked at new media and China-Africa relations from two different sides. Jinghao and I pretty much looked from the bottom up, um, and you look from the top down. And I was wondering, um, do you feel that the, you know, kind of looking from your perspective, does the kind of stuff that we, that we showed, you know, kind of showed in our work, does that fit into your, the way that you, that you see the, you know, the kind of role that social media might play in the future? How do you think it might change now? How do you think it will impact on China-Africa relations in the future? Well, you know, when I, when I look at the social media, I actually look at it as an indication of what's happening in the larger relationship. So when I look at what is said on the social media, I look at it as a um, what types of sentiments are out there, but not necessarily because we know that social media is difficult to gauge and measure. It's not necessarily opinion, but maybe a certain kind of sentiment that's coming out. And, I mean, it makes me think about the larger relationship is that, I mean, even in your case, we talk about how how – you know, focus they are on economic relations. And this doesn't only go from China to Africa. If I look at South Africa to China, it's a similar issue. I mean, just the fact that we have one, um, you know, media, well, news correspondent in China for South Africa, which covers China and the region, the East Asian region, just tells us, you know, how interested we are actually in getting to know no China. Um, I do think it's slowly changing and evolving. I mean, Kobus, you know that the type of events that we've gone to, slowly, you know, um, Chinese and Africans are um, starting to dispel the misconceptions they have about each other. Um, so I think, yeah, I think at the moment, I still feel like 
there's a lot of focus on economics and high politics. And you can see this, I think, Hong Kong University, the media studies um, um, center, they came out with a, um, a study that showed that, you know, not only do the international news focus on um, China and Africa relations from a very economic and high politics um, uh, point of view, but so do the Chinese media. And this just goes back to perhaps this is what the public wants to know about. So, I mean, I think that's that's my concern. And I think this is interesting because it lets us start to address these issues. But I think also looking at your paper, what I found interesting was um, every time I read it, I just thought about how, you know, the, the idea of guanxi, uh, interpersonal relations, um, that's a very important tradition in, or in practice in China or in Chinese culture, and how that is probably a factor because, um, in, in how Chinese engage with social media. I mean, because that in itself is a type of social networking. And so perhaps that is a reason why they've taken onto it in such a, you know, economic way than we've seen in the West. Um, and I think that's interesting. So, you know, we're looking at, um, how the social media is actually making more efficient the way to give information and trust and res- respect. So you, but it's actually widening that. Um, but then my question is, if this is, um, you know, a basis for for your engagement on the social media, again, you know, we talked about how this might actually also um, limit you in a way because you are only going to engage or do business with your own or someone that you might know. Mm-hmm. I think yes, yes, I completely agree. And it's the issue is how how to get Africans onto that network. You know, kind of how how to how to find a some kind of uh, like multicultural vocabulary of Guanxi. Um, and that, yeah, that's a big challenge. You know, I think that's probably a few years away. Well, I think Yushan yeah, is. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, Yushan. I think Yushan is understating it a little bit. It's not interesting. It's absolutely fascinating. Yushan, let me give you the final word on this subject. I'm sorry, I cut you off. Well, I, I don't know what you think about this, but in a way, that's why I can understand why the Chinese government would invite Africans to China or that they are, you know, that they are providing funds for these kind of um, these kind of efforts. Because if we don't have someone driving this, how do we get the publics interested in each other? It's a very exactly, and and language issues become so important, you know. So having Africans that speak that speak Chinese, you know, a Mandarin. On a sophisticated level, to to the extent where you can actually have these, you know, kind of be aware of these these kind of very subtle cues that 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 is very important in East Asian interaction. I think that's incredibly important, and without it, it's it's very difficult to develop. Well, I think that's what you're going to start to see evolve in the next generation. Hold on, Jinghao. I'll be right there, which is the idea that you're seeing more young Africans who are studying Chinese uh, across the continent at, at various Confucius institutes and at their universities and high schools. And you're seeing, obviously, a, a, you know, continued migration from China to Africa. So there's going to be, you know, hopefully, I mean, this is the optimistic view of the world, that there's going to be greater understanding just by virtue of the fact that the two are actually engaging in one another's cultures. Jinghao, your final thoughts. Yeah, um, well, just, just to take what you said, that uh, in my paper, the third function of the forum, that the Internet Forum being used by Chinese is exact, exactly talking about Africa and African culture by the Chinese travelers. So when we're looking at the Chinese people going to Africa, 
We cannot forget that, you know, except for the business people and, 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 and the students, there are a small number of Chinese who are starting to realize that Africa is a continent with fascinating travel uh, tourism resources. You know, there's Victoria Falls, there's Table Mountain, there is Sahara Desert, and a lot of them are going, are coming. And we, in South Africa here, we are seeing like a tremendous increase of the number of Chinese tourists in 2012 compared to 2011. And all these tourists, tourists coming to Africa, like they're not uh, the the fresh travelers uh, on uh, at all. Like so a lot of them have been to Europe, have been to Southeast Asia, so they know what's going on. The reason they came to Africa is just to get the fresh experience. And when they got this experience, a lot of them actually talk about them in internet forums or the blogs or Weibo or whatever social media. And people are more likely to read these articles than people complaining than the Chinese people complaining about Africa uh, when they're working Africa. So like these tourism uh, news uh, images of Africa and sentiments and some kind of first uh, uh, first uh, feelings of the African culture will actually have a role in kind of facilitating cultural understanding and promote more interests in coming to Africa. And we, we're actually looking forward to seeing more Chinese uh, coming to the African continent in the next 10 years. And just to kind of integrate into the, the Michael Sata's visit in China, one of the things he promotes is the tourism resource Zambia has and wanting Chinese people to come to visit the Victory Falls and also the, the landscape in Africa. So I think all these things, uh, you know, except uh, besides the language uh, uh, and cultural exchange; these are the actual non-governmental driven, uh, uh, you know, cultural change, uh, cultural interaction that will have a uh, impact on on the mutual understanding. Well, what do you think about the interaction between Chinese and Africans, and will social media help uh, contribute to solutions, or will it actually ex exacerbate the problems and the cultural divides that exist? Again, we want to kind of remind you that our Facebook page is there at China Africa Project slash uh, – I'm sorry, Facebook.com slash China Africa Project, a great discussion that we're having there. So we're going to end today doing something a little bit different. Normally, we do our three topics, and then we say goodbye, but I also want to give a little shout-out to uh, Marius Kotor, I hope, I hope I'm saying your name right. Uh, Marius is a uh, is is a, a student from Togo at the University of Rochester in New York, and she posted uh, for her class. I, I assume I think she's doing an undergraduate class um, where she kind of raised the question of is China colonizing Africa? And she posted a video on YouTube and then posted it to our Facebook page and asked us for our response. We, of course, posted it onto the main Facebook page and she got dozens of likes, uh, quite a few shares. So I think that was a really exciting opportunity. But let's take a listen to what Marius had to say when it comes to the Chinese. Are they colonizing Africa? I personally agree that Africans should be critical of all their economic relationships, no matter who it's with. But the claims that the Chinese are colonizing the continent or that they're interested in colonizing the continent are simply exaggerated. The first difference between the Chinese involvement in Africa and the colonial relationship with Europeans that we saw some six years ago has this, is this huge element of choice. African countries actually have a choice in how and when and if they want to engage with the Chinese. During colonialism, this choice was just simply not there. No African countries decided that, oh, they wanted to be colonized or who they wanted to be colonized by, etc. Kobus, um, Marius really touched the issue that you and I have talked about quite a bit, that 
colonizing and, and, and neo-colonialism, as we heard from Sanusi in Nigeria a couple months ago, is really not the appropriate word because, as Marius points out, this is voluntarily accepting Chinese engagement. Colonialism came in at the barrel of a gun. Um, and it was not voluntary, you know, voluntary. And so I just, I guess I'm frustrated the fact that an undergraduate college student is, you know, far more sophisticated in her analysis than the vast majority of, you know, you know, better paid, I won't say highly paid, but better paid international media that cover this issue and that continue to come back to this colonialism theme. What was your thought when you heard Marius's uh, thesis? Yeah, I, I was. I was so glad that you said it. I, I, th- I think it's a fantastic point, um, and you know, it, it, I think it points us towards that we need a new word. You know, kind of frequently, what you I think what you find in the West is that people have a very limited vocabulary to refer to Africa to with. You know, kind of they they, they don't have a lot of of a very a breadth of knowledge or breadth of thinking about Africa. Um, so it's, so they they tend to kind of fall back on on you know on, on very well-known concepts and in this case I think it's just not an appropriate concept you know kind of it, it, it diminishes the the crime that was colonialism you know kind of real real European colonialism was an unending nightmare and you know and to compare that you know there are problems with Chinese engagement but it's not this it's not in the same it's not on the same planet I mean as the kind of horrors of, of European colonialism and, and colonialism was setting up a full administration that was educational systems it was political systems it was a bureaucracy. It was all of those different things. You know, Jinghao, to me, the, the Chinese, when they're accused of colonialism, that just must piss them off more than anything you can possibly imagine, in part because China itself was the victim of European colonialism in, in, the, 18th and 19, in the 19th and 20th centuries. Actually, 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. Um, I'm getting my history messed up here. But, uh, and I know there's going to be some Twitter followers who are going to kind of criticize me on this. But the point is that that must rankle them quite a bit. And so, you know, here I sit in Vietnam where there is a long history of, of, of antipathy, antipathy to China. And in part because China was, you know, Vietnam was a tributary state to China. And so I, I'm going back to Martin Jack in, in his book, When China Rules the World. And he wrote that says that there is no precedent for colonialism in the Chinese historical context, but there is precedent for creating tributary states. So if anything, China is developing unequal economic relationships in Africa that are far more similar to the old China-Vietnam model from thousands of years ago than they are to the colonial model of more contemporary history. What's your thought on that? Well, I think people must understand, like I, I tell a lot of journalists that people must understand that the, the China never wants to create like a uh, superpower that uh, you know kind of asserts its interest to to to, to everyone. Because um, if you are if you are the decision maker in China, you have no choice but looking for a, a more active uh, approach to engage with the the world economy through um, you know facilitating the uh, global interest uh, investment into into Africa into Latin America. Uh, but uh, you know because the 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 government has been promoting 
so much on 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 a trade and investment the least thing they want to promote is to to uh, to kind of uh, promote kind of conflictory uh, interest that you know favoring to one party and and, and uh, drive another one away so i i think there's no way that the, the chinese people will agree that china china needs to colonize uh, a a african uh, african country in order to uh, in, in order to do things with them so um i think um, i'm sorry uh, eric what's your question again well, I, I guess I, my my question was the fact that – I mean you, you basically answered it, but is that there really isn't a historical precedent for China colonizing other countries. And I'm going to cut my critics off at the pass here that Tibet, Xinjiang and Inner Mongolia are, are, are very different examples. And I've gotten into a number of discussions on Facebook where they say, well, Tibet is a colony of China. Tibet is not a colony of China. Tibet was a, an acquisition of China the same way, in my opinion, that California was an acquisition of the United States federal government. Um, it is just, you know, boundaries are defined by conquest and war, and that's just the way it is. That is not the same as colonialism. Colonialism is a very different thing, and the Chinese have not been a colonial power. But they have been a tributary power. That is, throughout Asian history, the Koreans, the Vietnamese, and there's a number of other states that were tributary states to China. And so Martin Jack Jinghao, he makes the point that, and this is what I wanted to get your reaction on, that if anything, that China is creating tributary states in Africa more than they're creating colonial states. And that is that the economic imbalance between, say, Ghana and China is so vast that China has implicit power over, over Ghana simply by virtue of the economic disparity that exists between the two. Right. Well, as I said, well, the first thing is if China wants to exert its power into any country to subdue them, I, I don't think it will um, serve its, its own interests because uh, at this moment there's enough uh, mass, domestic mass China needs to sort out then kind of maintaining a, a kind of um, a, a military base or whatever it is to subdue other nations. If you're talking about a tributary uh, Tribury or whatever system, uh, I, we need to understand like what what's the force, what's the external force over there to make that relationship there. Oh, if it's, um, the, the external force is very. Oh no, I'm sorry. Let me, let me interrupt you. The external force is very very simple. If Ghana decides that it wants to recognize Taiwan as a legitimate government of China, um, China will make Ghana's life absolutely miserable. And it can because it's got the economic levers to do so now because Ghana is so economically dependent on China. So there is legitimate concern that the imbalance in economic power between Ghana and China, and as Ghana becomes more economically dependent on trade, on loans, and also on China's support in international organizations at the World Trade Organization, at the UN, you know, imagine then if Ghana decides to pursue an independent foreign policy that conflicts with China. That, that, is a, that could be a problem for Ghana. Well, Eric, so sorry to interrupt, but you know, kind of, but there are African countries that, that do recognize and Taiwan. they suffer. And I mean, yeah, but I mean, but I don't think I don't know that they necessarily suffer because of direct victimization by China. What they simply suffer suffering from is by being left out of the kind of massive massive investment boom that is coming from China. So I think though those two might be a bit different. Yeah, but you mean look at look at the I mean we're we're going way off uh, off base here, but look at South Africa. And the fact that even South Africa, you know, did not give and admitted to political impropriety to giving a visa to the Dalai Lama for fear of upsetting China. And so the question is now South Africa is the most powerful economy in all of Africa. If they are intimidated, what is Botswana to do? 
Yeah, you know, kind of, um, it's, yeah, you know, kind of, I think, I think in the case of the, the Dalai Lama issue, there are, there were kind of, uh, local domestic issues involved as well. Um, you know, I, I wasn't, I, I'm not sure whether it was direct intimidation or whether it was also a certain amount of fellow feeling. You know, that, that's something that I myself am, am unsure about. Because obviously between, there, there's a certain amount of, of ideological overlap between between China and the South African government as well. So I think it, be, it became maybe a little bit more complicated. But I, I, I see your point, you know, but if, I mean, China is incredibly strong, you know, and, and you know, and many African economies are weak. But, you know, it's, it's, if I, I wouldn't necessarily say that China is, you know, engages in, like, economic terrorism. No, 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 and please don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting that either. I'm only suggesting that there, uh, there is a case to be made that China's growing influence in, in individual African states could create the perception that China is now a what you know more closer to the model of a tributary power. That is that the smaller states must line up behind China's agenda, or else it could suffer dramatic, dramatic and drastic economic consequences that could be very grave. Uh, so that is that is the concern. Well, I, I, uh, yeah, go ahead, Jinghao. Yeah, I think the economic consequence suffering from not dealing with China is all of the world. If the U.S. tomorrow decides it's not dealing with China anymore, China is going to sell all the U.S. bonds and both countries are going to like destroy itself. So I, I think it's not in the position to kind of interpret saying, okay, China is this or that. You're kind of drawing a line between uh, colonialism and the tribu- tributary nations or being a peaceful nation or so on. Uh, the effect is China is a nation with 1.3 billion people and and the $3.5 trillion U.S. dollar reserve, it's investing abroad in order to create the, uh, a better environment for domestic growth. And, and because of that, uh, you know, it is in Africa. It's facilitating Chinese uh, investment into Africa. So to interpret that, you know, instead of um, – uh, I, I mean, I'm speaking on behalf of Africans. I don't know if they agree with me. Instead of pointing finger at each other saying China is bad – because it's a colonial power. If it's a colonial power, what should we do? Uh, you know, I don't think anything will happen because the it's nation, national uh, uh, the deals between the nations are simply not affected by by these kind of um, uh, opinions. I think the best way is to to say because China is here, because China is rising and becoming economic power, and it's so important that in the next uh, two decades that we need we need to know how to deal with uh, China in terms. In terms of the, the foreign investment from China into Africa or in terms of the job opportunities uh, going out of China into somewhere all over the world and how Africa is going to take advantage of the shifting of global power in order to, to make a more favorable environment for its growth. I think it's more important than at this moment saying, analyzing into an in-depth level and making a conclusion that either China is good or bad. I think any Western powers have been in a position of dealing with Africa in a more or less imbalanced uh, point of uh, uh, you know situation. It's also uh, extracting natural resource out of Africa and uh, selling Africa some kind of manufactured goods. It's just because China is selling something that is more inferior and more kind of pervasive. Um, you, you cannot deny that all the machineries for the buildings and, and all these things are from Germany and where 
these uh, Western powers gets are oil and mineral as well. So that's just my point of view. Sure. Well, Marius, do you see what you did? You actually prompted a very, very heated debate here. And so we'd like to invite any student or researcher or anybody for that matter, if you've got a point of view and you'd like to post it up on YouTube, well, you can see what the consequences are. It actually sends us off into, you know, Cobus, what's become a record, our, our longest podcast ever in two years. And so we have Marius to thank for that. So uh, so that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. At the end of every show, what we do is we kind of put you in touch with the various contributors so that you can follow their work and what they're reading and what they're doing. Cobus, uh, let's start with you. If people want to follow you uh, on the various social networks that you're analyzing, what uh, where can they find you? Um, I'm, a, I'm frequently on our Facebook page um, uh, where I engage in lots of conversations and post lots of things. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesk. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And uh, Jinghao, where can people find you? Uh, I have a Facebook and Twitter account, and I maintain a blog uh, called A Chinese in Africa. The address is um, China-Africa-Jinghao um, at uh, dot, uh, .blogspot.com. Okay, that's an, it's an excellent blog. I must, uh, I, I can't recommend it enough. And Ushan, if people want to follow what you're doing at the South African Institute of International Affairs, where can people find you? Well, you can find me on Facebook. Um, you can find me on um, our work, my organization's work at sire.org.za. We're actually going to launch our new website soon. And for the moment, I'm still an observer on Twitter, but hopefully I'll be writing something more soon. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, hopefully you can get onto Twitter. And, when, and of course, Saya is on Twitter as well. And Saya has a great Twitter feed, which I'd like to kind yeah. of recommend as well. And of course, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at E-O-Lander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm tweeting almost every day the top headlines in China and Africa. So it's like a, a newswire, a curated newswire. So if you're interested in following kind of the top stories, this is a good place to do it. Also, you can find our podcast. Uh, we're everywhere you want to go, uh, particularly in South Africa, where we've talked a lot about. We are on the BlackBerry Network, uh, which is very, very popular in South Africa. So find us on the BlackBerry Network. You can also find us on SoundCloud, uh, also on Stitcher, and of course, most importantly, on iTunes. Just look up China Africa Project. You'll find both of our, our webs, I mean, our, our podcast, but also we've got mobile apps as well, where you can listen to the Facebook, uh, listen to the podcast and follow the Facebook community uh, in the iTunes store and also on Google Play. So download those apps as well. They are free and it's just a great way to follow uh, China Africa relations. So for next week, we will be back with another edition of the China and Africa podcast every Sunday. Thank you so much for listening.